0: You're listening to the Sermon Podcast for The Gate Church in Lethbridge, Alberta. For more information, to contact us, or to support this ministry, please visit thegate.org. Good morning. A special welcome to the kids who are upstairs this morning. It's Family Sunday, and that's when we get the opportunity to have church with our whole family here, not just the adults. And we affirm that kids are great. We affirm and support parents and kids coming to church together and experiencing church together. And we also love our Kidsgate volunteers and want to give them a break every so often. So here we are. I'm going to try really hard to keep this message short and involve the kids as well. And so last week, if you remember, Pastor Greg talked about the prophet Nahum and his message to Nineveh. Nahum's message was of judgment and God's discipline on this great city and the Assyrian people that lived there. It's sobering to think about God's wrath, but also it's hopeful to think about God's justice in the world. God truly wants people to live and not die, but yet he doesn't leave the guilty unpunished. Here's the thing. Nahum, as Greg mentioned, was the second prophet to directly prophesy against Nineveh. Jonah was the first one. Jonah is mentioned as a prophet in 2 Kings 14, verses 23 to 25. And it reads there, In the fifteenth year of King Amaziah, son of Joash of Judah, King Jeroboam, son of Joash of Israel, began to reign in Samaria. And he reigned 41 years. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, which he caused Israel to sin. He restored the border of Israel from Lebo Hamath, as far as the Sea of the Arabah, according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel. And here it is, which he spoke by his servant Jonah, son of Amittai, the prophet who was from Gath Hefer. And so we can know that Jonah was a prophet in the northern kingdom of Israel during the reign of Jeroboam II. The date for this would be around seven hundred eighty to seven fifty BC, and Nahum came a few generations later. So the people and the king of Nineveh who responded to Jonah and his message to Nineveh were long gone by the time Nahum came around and again spoke about the evil behavior that the Ninevites had fallen back into. So who knows the story of Jonah? Yeah, we probably all do. We've all at least heard portions of the story, but I want to tell it to you here. We know that God told Jonah to go to Nineveh. And Jonah decided to run away from God. Jonah one, verse three says, But Jonah set out to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid his fare and went on board to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. <laughs> but God finds him on that boat. And a big storm comes. The sailors are scared for their lives. And at Jonah's insistence, they toss him overboard to calm the sea down. And so God sends a big fish to swallow Jonah up. And for three days and three nights, Jonah is is somehow inside this fish's belly. Jonah has some time to think things over. (laughs) And he prays to God and then the fish vomits him out onto the beach. So God again tells Jonah to go to Nineveh and Jonah does it this time. Good for him. He preaches the world's shortest sermon in Jonah 3 verse 4. It says here, Jonah began to go into the city going a day's walk and he cried out, 40 days more and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Man, maybe I should preach short sermons like that. Who agrees? (laughs) Lo and behold the people repent. The enemies of God hear God's voice through Jonah and turn from their wicked ways. And this is what the king of Nineveh commands the whole city to do in Jonah chapter 3, 7 to 9. Uh, then the king had a proclamation made to, in Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, no human being or animal, no herd or flock shall taste anything. They shall not feed nor shall they drink water. Human beings and animals shall be covered in sackcloth and they shall cry mightily to the Lord. All shall turn from their evil ways and from the violence that is in their hands. Who knows? The king said, maybe God will relent and change his mind. He may turn from his fierce anger so that we do not perish. God sees what they did. And he does relent. He changed his mind about the calamity that he was going to bring upon them. And that's amazing. God's kindness, God's grace wins. I mean, I find it very interesting. The king of Nineveh is very concerned about the animals repenting as well. Even the cows are sorry for what they are done. I don't know what kind of sins cows and herds can commit, but they put on sackcloth too. That's intense. But then we find, we go back to Jonah, and he is throwing a temper tantrum. Who who has thrown a temper tantrum in their life? Me. I definitely have. All right, he doesn't like this new plan of God. He does not like the fact that God changed his mind. He wanted the Ninevites to get destroyed. He wanted that so badly, and when he doesn't get his way, this is what he prays in Jonah chapter 4. Two and three, he prayed to the Lord and said, "O Lord, is not this what I said while I was still in my own country? That is why I fled to Tarshish in the beginning, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and ready to relent from punishing. And now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live." Wow. He's basically saying that he he knows God's character and he knows what God is like and he doesn't like that God is acting in accordance with his own character. We find out the real reason as to why he ran away in the first place. It wasn't because he, I don't know, somehow feared the Ninevites and what they might do to him. No, it's because he feared, he didn't want God to show compassion and love towards his enemies. God gently asks Jonah then, is it right for you to be angry? And in a huff, Jonah walks right out of the city. He builds a little blanket fort for himself and sits down and sees what would happen. He's just kind of sitting there pouting, I think. That's how I imagine it. And this is where God turns his attention to Jonah himself. All right, the people of Nineveh—they're repenting. They're on the right track. You know, I guess Jonah has done what he needed to do, but Jonah himself has gotten off the right, gotten off track. And and God turns to Jonah and teaches him a lesson uh, with a bush, a worm, and the wind. That and we actually don't know. We don't know how Jonah responds to this lesson because. The story ends, the book of Jonah ends with God rebuking Jonah. And the response that Jonah gives back to God is not recorded. And so that's the story of Jonah. And I really do encourage you to read it this week. It's, it's like four chapters. It's really easy to read. You could read it out loud with your family. And, and I think you will discover, as I did, as I was reading it, uh, there's two things in here that, that I want to, to fish out of it. This morning, Uh, uh, okay, Uh, that is the response I was expecting. All right, two things though, two things. God is our provider and is in control. That's number one. And number two is God loves everybody, even the people we don't. Okay, I need some help from the kids, okay? Where are you guys? Just pay attention just for a second here. Um, Who has thrown a baseball in their life all right how can you can you like do the action as you would what you, what would you do to throw a baseball yeah just like like that right all right okay how about how about um soccer ball have you guys ever done like a throw-in at a soccer game how would you do that Huxley yeah exactly overhead both hands both feet on the ground very important how about like a, a paper airplane how would you throw a paper airplane Piper how would you throw one yeah, exactly. You kind of grip it, and you let it go. Right? Awesome. How about like a, a really like you you know you're rolling up a a snowball like a building a snowman, and then all of a sudden you decide I want to throw this. How would you throw a big snowball? Uh, Paley? No, sorry, Rebecca. I'm sorry. How would you throw a big snowball? Yeah, exactly. Or like even if it's bigger, it's like. Ugh, eh. And then it wouldn't be really a throwing, but, you know. Okay, so thank you. Thank you, kids. Um, It it says in Jonah 1, verse 4, But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and such a mighty storm broke out, came upon the sea that the ship threatened to break up. How do you think God would throw or hurl a storm? Anyone? What do you think, Huxley? Huxley? Oh, maybe he does this, and like, ah, yeah. Like, I don't know, I I was trying to picture this, and it's like, you know, maybe he had to like gather up some storm clouds and like kind of mush them together, maybe like cotton candy. I don't know, and then you throw, I don't know. Anyways, it's an interesting mental picture, but it says God hurled a storm, and I like that. I like that, that God was in control of the weather. Right? He, he had control of this weather, he started the storm, he hurled it. And as the storm rages on, we can find that Jonah knows this. Jonah knows that God is in control. And I kind of think he's having second guessing, guesses about him, the ability to run away from God. Because this is what he says, that the sailors ask him, like, what kind of God do you serve? What, like, what's going on? Um, and, and, and this is what he, that Jonah responds to them. I am a Hebrew. He replied, I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. When Jonah says this, the sailors respond, I think, really quite realistically. What are you doing? Why are you running away from God? How do you think that's going to end up? And I agree. If the God who Jonah says that he worships is the one who made the sea and the dry land and therefore is in control of all of that, how is going on a ship in the opposite direction going to get you away from God? How? (laughs) And so Jonah tries to hijack his own story here. He tells the sailors, oh, you just need to simply, you need to toss me overboard and then, then the sea will become still. And the sailors being honorable, which is, interesting to note in itself, didn't want to do this. They're like, no, 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 we're going to try to row ourselves out. We're going to get ourselves out of this storm. And so they continue to strain against the wind and the waves. They're trying desperately to save themselves and save Jonah, but it doesn't work. And in the end, they pray for God to forgive them. Don't hold this against us, O God. And they toss Jonah overboard. Now, this seems at first glance... I think to, to be, you know, you might think, oh, that's a very courageous thing that Jonah did. You know, he was willing to sacrifice himself. But Tim Mackey from the Bible Project, I was watching a video of him, and he pointed out that perhaps another way of thinking about this is that Jonah was actually kind of a coward when he did this. Because Jonah really did not want to follow God's instructions. And Jonah was like, okay, if I die in the sea, then I'm not going to have to go to Nineveh. There's no way, there's no way that God is going to be able to pull me out of this mess and get me to go back to Nineveh. Ha. I'm sure God just chuckled at that thought. Anyways, God does not accept this scheme of Jonah. And in 117, it says that God provided a large fish to swallow up Jonah. Whoop. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. Okay, kids, another question for you. Have you ever been swallowed by a fish? Anyways, Jasper, you have? Wow, how was that? <laughs> okay, here's a fun story, though. A couple of years ago, there was a man who actually did get swallowed by a whale. All right, A guy named Mike, he was a lobsterman and he was diving underwater to, to collect lobsters in the Atlantic Ocean. And a big humpback whale came and uh, the way the humpback whales feed is they just swim around with their big mouth open. And like all the little fish and the creatures just like, sw- you know, can't help but swim right inside. And Mike got in the way. And so he was swallowed inside this whale's mouth. And, and he estimates he was probably in his mouth for about 30 to 40 seconds. And then the whale, bleh, spit him out. And, you know, he was saved and he was rescued and that, and that sort of thing. And, and Mike survived to tell the whale of a tale. I'm not going to quit. <laughs> in the case of Jonah, however, um, this large sea creature, this large fish was able to swallow Jonah, and somehow Jonah was able to survive in the belly of this fish for three days and three nights. Now, I cannot imagine this being very comfortable, right? You know, I, I know that the, like, the VeggieTales version, if I'm remembering correctly, it's kind of a rather spacious enclosure, and you know, there's room for him to, like, I think, light a lamp or something like that and have some chats with the little worm guy. Is that right? Am I remember? Okay. I don't think that's the way it was, though, right? You know, you think of, of a, you know, sure, uh, even like a, the biggest of, of whales or whatever this creature was, they're big, but I don't think their stomach just had lots of spacious room for the people to hang out. And so there wasn't probably much else for him to do but think about things and pray. And, and so after praying it through Jonah, well, actually, he didn't really repent. If you read it carefully, chapter 2, he kind of came close to repenting of his disobedience, but he didn't. But God had mercy on him. And then comes one of my new favorite life verses. Then the Lord spoke to the fish, and it spewed Jonah out upon the dry land. That's an amazing verse. (laughs) Okay, kids, I have another question for you. Another question. Uh, what do you think it sounds like when, jo, when, when God spoke to the fish? Huxley? Blub, 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 blub. Yeah. Alicia? I bet he just talked to the fish and the fish understood because he's God. I, ha- I kind of have a feeling. I'm not sure what kind of languages fish or whales or whatever speak, but it makes sense. God created the fish, so why wouldn't he be able to communicate with it? Right? God spoke to the fish, and and, and God knows how to direct it to the right spot to swallow Jonah, first of all, to save him from, the, from, the, from drowning in the sea, and then also makes it swim back to shore and then vomit bleh, him out onto the dry land. And can you imagine that? Can you imagine what Jonah was like? What his what his situation would have been like. My goodness, that poor fish. That poor fish. It had an unwilling, undigested Jonah in it for three days. It wouldn't have been very comfortable. And I'm glad that I'm sure that the fish was very glad to get rid of that Jonah. So in his anger, oh no, sorry. I'd skipped ahead. God tells Jonah to get going, to go back to Nineveh. And this time Jonah says, Yes, I will go. And he preaches the world's shortest sermon. The people repent. God changes his mind from the calamity that was he was going to come. And then Jonah gets angry. And in his anger, as I said, Jonah builds a little fort to go and sulk in. And then God does something really interesting. He provides. That's the key word, provides. He provides Jonah with three things. He first provides Jonah with a bush or a a shade tree, all right? This is kind of, you know, in the desert, it's hot. And so God provides Jonah with a tree to come grow really quickly over top of his little fort and to shelter him from the discomfort that the hot sun would have been causing him. And this makes Jonah very happy. It actually says that this made Jonah very happy, not just a little bit happy. But then here's the next thing that God provides. And this is the same word in Hebrew. God provides a worm to attack the bush and kill it. Yeah, God provides a worm so that the bush dies. And then thirdly, God provides, and again, this is the same Hebrew word, a hot east wind fresh off the desert that will make Jonah angry once again. And and again, Jonah feels it is better to die than to live. And so God provides a bush. God provides a worm. And then God provides a hot east wind. When we say things like, Oh, don't worry, God will provide. God is in control. What do we mean by that? Or when we say that God will work out all things for the good of those who love him, it says that in Romans 8.28, but but what good are we talking about here? Are we saying that God will work out everything so that we continue to, to have good feelings and that our things will never be bad? Or should we start perhaps thinking, opening our eyes to the fact that perhaps God has a much greater good in mind for us when he provides a fish belly to be half digested in, or when he provides a worm and a hot, uncomfortable east wind so Jonah can hopefully learn something? God provides. It might not always be good. According to us, can we accept that some th- sometimes the things that are hard in our lives, the things that make us uncomfortable and give us pause, are there because God provided them? Can we accept that the storms that we face in life might be there because God is in control and He wants us to make a course correction? The whole point of Jonah's epic adventure of storms, fish bellies, bushes, worms, and wind was to bring, them, bring him to a full knowledge that God is a God who loves everyone, not just Jonah's tribe, not just Jonah's people. So when I read Jonah's prayer in chapter 4, a bit ago, you might have caught that this was Jonah saying back to God what God had proclaimed to Moses back in Exodus chapter 34. And this is what, what God said to Moses back then. The Lord passed before Moses and he proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness keeping steadfast love for the thousandth generation, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, yet by no means clearing the guilty, but visiting the iniquity of the parents upon the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. This is who God is. This is God's character and name that was given to Moses. And and Jonah takes this picture of a God of justice, yes, but also a God who is gracious and compassionate and steadfast in love and throws it back in God's face. Jonah also would have known of the the covenant that God made with Abraham in Genesis 12 where God promises to bless the Israelites, yes, so that they can be a blessing to others, so that they could become a blessing to the whole world which includes their enemies. And so Jonah knows who God is, but he is unwilling unwilling to be a blessing to his enemies, to tell them about God's love because he doesn't want them to repent. He doesn't want them to experience God's grace, and so he runs away through this whole story of God providing things for Jonah, both good and bad, and and God's control over everything, I believe we can see that God was bringing about this lesson, that God cares and loves everyone, even Jonah's mortal enemies. And so God and Jonah have a short exchange right at the end of the story. In chapter 4, verse 9, to 11 and this is what it says this is how the book of Jonah ends but god said to jonah is it right for you to be angry about the bush this is after the bush had died in the hot wind and the worm and jonah said yes angry enough to die <laughs> and the lord said you are concerned about the bush for which you did not labor, and which you did not, which did not grow. It came into being in a night, and it perished in a night. Should I not be more concerned about Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than a hundred and twenty thousand persons who did not know their right hand from their left, and also many animals? Hmm. Jonah is ticked. He is ticked. About the bush, which came and went in a matter of a couple of days. Shouldn't God be much more concerned about this great city, which is a way bigger deal than a bush? Shouldn't God be way more concerned about the welfare and the lives of thousands of people? Of course, that's God's character. And that's what God is saying. Of course, I want to give everyone a chance to repent and to experience the compassion and the grace of God. Jonah, I want to give even your enemies a chance to repent and experience the love of God. I've already asked you a big question today about accepting God's provision and control, but I want to ask you Another question, are we okay with God loving our enemies in the exact same way in which he loves us? Are we okay with that? And the the practical application of this is Jesus telling us in Matthew 5, but I say to you, love your enemies. And pray for those who persecute you. So that you may be children of your Father in heaven. For he makes his Son to rise on the evil and the good. And sends rain on the righteous and on the unrighteous. To love other people. To pray for other people. And to go out and actively show love to other people. Including our enemies in the same way that God has shown love to us. And you you might say to yourself, well, I don't have any enemies. No one's actively seeking to destroy us. Oh, okay. What about people who are on the opposite side of the political fences? What about folks who, who... who sit in the park across the street and are not in a sober state of mind? What about people in the LGBTQ community? Are we supposed to love those people? Yes. Are we supposed to pray for those people? Yes. I was talking to Nora about this part of Jonah's story the other night. And how God loves everybody, and that we should too. And, and she told me that there was a couple of people in her class that she didn't really like. Fair enough. And well, what should we do about that? What should we do about that? Pray for them? And she responded, it's really hard to do that, Dad. I'm like, yeah, it is. It is hard to do that. But we can do hard things. We can do hard things. In fact, we can do all things, including surviving through hard things, because Christ has given us strength to do those hard things. Can we accept that the storms and the worms in life are there because, because God is in control? And perhaps... They're there to bring about a a, a course correction to show that we are supposed to love our enemies. To teach us that lesson. Because the truth is that while we were still sinners, Jesus died for us. While we were still enemies of God, He loved us that much. And as God has loved us, we are to love other people.